Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, imagine if somebody came up to you and said that there is a lion prowling out in your suburb. How would you respond uh, to that comment? Would you, and let's just suppose that, that that's actually a true statement. No, someone's not trying to deceive you in any way, but it's an actual true statement. How would you respond? What, what if that person then said, oh, by the way, this, this lion is, uh, is, even though he's chained up, he still prowls around, and while he might not be able to kill you, he can still attack you and harm you. Would you then, as a result of this news, be so scared and petrified that you would go run into your room and just sit there for the rest of your life? Or would you think that, oh, you know what, he's in chains and uh, just carry on with life like nobody's business as though even this lion is not there? How How would you respond to something like this? You know, sometimes I feel that the way us as Christians can respond to the very real presence of Satan in this world can be like that. Either it can be an absolute preoccupation with evil and Satan and demons and everything is about him and people get so obsessed over it and sometimes even petrified that they can't even live their normal Christian lives. Or on the other side, people generally tend to ignore the reality of this great evil one. This morning, we're going to look throughout Scripture. We're going to look at a lot of verses this morning. So fasten your minds and just be ready to look at a whole bunch of verses. And we're going to look at what Scripture has to say with regards to Satan. Now you say, but why are we suddenly looking at the topic of Satan? You see, once we turn to, we've been going through Genesis, we finished Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and everything has been glorious and wonderful. And as we turn to Genesis 3, things start to become different from the harmony and perfection of what God had made. We saw in the last few weeks how man was in perfect harmony with the animals. He was in perfect harmony with his wife. And he was in perfect harmony with God. And so everything is beautiful and harmonious and perfect in this world that God has created. And right at the start of Genesis 3, as we just read before, we're introduced now to a new character, a talking serpent. And even as we go through Genesis 3, we will see that this serpent will will actually deceive Eve and finally cause both Adam and Eve to sin and rebel against God. And as a result, sin and death come into this world. But we have to ask the question, first and foremost, who is this serpent? Where did he come from? Remember, chapter 2, all of chapter 2 was an expansion of day 6. And we saw at the end of day 6 in chapter 1 and verse 31 of Genesis, where God at the end of day 6 looks at everything and he sees that it is very good. Everything is exactly how God had planned. Everything is harmonious and God says it is very good as he looks upon all that he has made. And then we also know that then moving on to day 7, God rests on day 7. And he enjoys his creation as he looks upon it. And all of creation enters into that rest of God. So then you have to ask, so then where did this evil serpent come from? 
If everything is good, where did this, this new character come from all of a sudden? Who is this serpent? Well, first of all, the term serpent is nahash. It's a general term, and it's, it's a term that is used for both snakes as well as dragons. Snakes and dragons in the Bible are types of serpents. Now, for example, in Exodus 4.3, when God tells Moses through to throw down his staff on the ground, it says that the serpent became, uh, his staff became a serpent. Now, more than likely, it implies that it became a snake. But then if you turn to Isaiah 27 and verse 1, we see the serpent is not just a wriggly serpent, a wriggly snake, but it's a much bigger creature. Look what it says in Isaiah 27.1. It says, In that day the Lord God with his hard and great and strong sword will punish, notice, Leviathan. And look at the way the Leviathan is described. The fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So here the serpent is equated with a much larger creature as the Leviathan, who is some sort of a sea dragon. Now Job 41 gives us more details about what a Leviathan is, and we looked at that passage uh, quite a few weeks ago. So a serpent can also be a, a Leviathan, a massive uh, sea dragon. Now, this past week, I was trying to think of if there's anything, you know, that we know now that we can relate to uh, that would possibly fit the description of a Leviathan. You know, what came to mind is the, the Chinese dragon. You know those Chinese dances and the Chinese dragon? Or even the, the, the mascot of Singapore. You know, it, it is a dragon, and yet... It's more like a snake, isn't it? Where it, it, it's long and it's wriggly, and yet it, it, it is a big dragon. So more than likely that this Leviathan would have been some sort of huge creature like that, which was this massive snake-like thing, but was actually a dragon. So now if you look back at Genesis 3, What's interesting is this. After the fall, when God curses the serpent, you know what he says? He says, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That's what he tells the serpent in Genesis 3. Which means that more than likely before the fall, this serpent didn't crawl on its belly. That came after the fall. So quite likely, even the serpent here in Genesis 3 is unlike any snake that we know now. It would have been a snake most likely with some legs. Some theologians have even contemplated uh, or conjectured that it may even had wings. So it's more than likely this serpent that you see here in the garden would have looked more like a small dragon with legs, more than the kind of snake that we know now. That, that kind of a snake crawling on its belly, that happened only after God cursed the serpent and we have those kind of snakes. Now, what's intriguing about this serpent is that it talks as well. Now, you say, why is this serpent talking? Well, because it's supernaturally empowered. Something or someone is causing this serpent to talk. Now, most of you would say, oh, I know who the serpent is. The serpent is Satan. But then I would ask you, how do you know that? 
There's nothing in Genesis 3 that tells us that Satan is the serpent. So how do we know uh, for sure that this is Satan? Well, you don't find it in Genesis 3, but as you move along, God has revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Turn to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and look at the description here. It says here, the great dragon, again, more like a Leviathan kind of creature here, was hurled down, and look at the uh, descriptors of this great dragon. That ancient serpent, which ancient serpent? That ancient serpent from back in the garden. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And so what's interesting is while Satan is portrayed or embodies a small snake, a, a more likely a smaller creature in the garden, here he's the ancient serpent is more portrayed as the Leviathan, the big dragon. And you see the same thing again in Revelation 20 verse 2 where it says, He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So what we can say from these New Testament passages is that the ancient serpent, that is the serpent in Genesis 3, is Satan himself. And just like Satan and his demons can possess human beings, he can also possess animals. And that's what we see here in the garden when the serpent is possessed by Satan and is causing the serpent to speak. And really what you see in Scripture as you move on from Genesis 3 is that the serpent for the most bit becomes a, a, a mascot or a, or a symbol of Satan and evil. At the start of the Bible, in Genesis 3, it's more like a small snake, although probably a, a snake with legs. In the end of the Bible, we see the serpent again in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, as we saw, and it's a huge dragon or leviathan. You know, one theologian has rightly noted Satan has two modes of being a serpent depending on his strategy. He takes on a snake if his strategy is to deceive and tempt and lie and backstab. He takes on a dragon if his strategy is to attack or devour. The same theologian goes on to say, Satan alternates between these two strategies throughout the Bible's storyline. I think he's got a point there. Now you say, but what specifically are Satan's strategies? and What are his intentions? What is his, his character like? What does he do in this world? Well, I would say just, just look at the terms that he is commonly known by and it gives us some clues. The very term Satan, it literally means the adversary or the, the enemy who opposes. And as we look at the Bible in the way Satan acts, we know that this is so true of him. He's the chief opponent the chief adversary, the, the chief enemy of God and his people and God's purposes and plans, always looking for ways to oppose God and somehow derail the things of God, even though he's not successful. Then the term devil, that's another term for him. It's a term that literally means slanderer. Someone who backstabs Someone who pulls down others with their words. Now this again is his chief occupation where Satan slanders God and he slanders even God's people back to God. You know, in Revelation 12.10, he's described as one who is the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them day and night before God. 
This is what he does. You know, he stands as a prosecutor before God the judge, the eternal judge, accusing God's people, slandering God's people. You know, of no, you, you, you know, he'll say things like, no, they deserve punishment. They don't deserve God's grace and favor. Look, they're, they're sinful people. Look, they're going astray and constantly slandering God's people to God himself. You get a couple of examples of that in Job 1 and 2 where God, if you remember, when God says Job is a righteous man, Satan, while he can't say anything about Job's uh, outward behavior, he questions Job's motives. And he says, well, God, if I were to paraphrase what Satan says in Job 1 and 2, well, God, the, the only reason Job worships you and is faithful to you is because you have blessed him with everything. That's the only reason he's faithful to you. And so in this sense, too, he's trying to tear Job down. No, he's actually not a righteous man, God. Similarly, in Zechariah 3.1, we see Satan standing on the right side again to accuse this high priest known as Joshua, to accuse this person back to God. So Satan is the chief opponent. He slanders God's people. Uh, he's also called the, the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12.9 that we just read before says. And you say, but how does he deceive? Well, by lying. John 8, 44, in fact, calls him the father of lies. In fact, it says that Satan, he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Meaning, there's no truth in Satan and it is his character trait to lie about things and never speak the truth. That's his very nature. That's his very character. He lies about the Word of God. He lies about who God is. And in fact, we'll see even some of those truths as we look more in detail in Genesis 3 next week. In fact, he even deceives and propagates his lies through false teaching and, and false teachers who are really his servants. You know, Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian church, warning them about false apostles who could lead the church astray. This is what Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse, verse 3. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He goes on to say in verses 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, deceiving, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So that's what he does. He, he deceives people by telling them lies, by bringing half-truths and, and false teachings even through false teachers. And you know, when you read through particularly the New Testament, these false teachers of various kinds, they, they seem very convincing. They come into the church and seem to convince, try to convince people. And what they do is ultimately only increase the, the burden on the people. And what it does is it doesn't cause people to love God and love Jesus and want to be faithful to Him. It just increases their burden. It makes their life toward God more burdensome. So Satan can deceive and lie and even bring false teachers into the church. Another way that Satan deceives is by blinding the minds of unbelievers from seeing the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan can prevent people from believing the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 again says this, For this reason, when I could not bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear, notice, that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In fact, even in the parable of the sower in in Luke chapter 8, it says that Satan can even pluck out the word of God that has been sown in the hearts of people so that they don't put their trust in Jesus. Just look at Luke 8.12, that's what it says there. The ones along the path, this is explaining that parable of the sower. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Heard what? Heard the word of God. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So Satan can deceive, he can lie, he can blind unbelievers and does those things so that people do not put their trust in Jesus and they are led astray. Satan can also tempt. In fact, he's called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3 as he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. In whatever area, in whatever situation Satan thinks we are weak in, he will come and tempt us in that area. He tempted Jesus when he was in the wilderness, when he went without food and water and thought he was at his weakest and tried to tempt him, but he was unsuccessful. But with us, there are other areas, so many areas that he tempts us in. One area would be in anger. Listen to Ephesians 4, 26, 27. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And notice, and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, if we as believers refuse to deal with our anger problem, then Satan is going to cause harm to us within ourselves through that anger, and both to ourselves and even to those around us if we don't deal with our anger problem. And it's not just anger, even things like sexual sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where Paul is encouraging sexual intimacy between the husband and the wife. Why? Because he says, so that one may not be tempted by Satan in this particular area. So you need to come together. In fact, 1 Timothy 5, 14 and 15 also seems to point again to this temptation of sexual intimacy, but this time for those who are young widows. So Satan can influence you, can tempt you to turn away from God and his plans and what he wants you to do. And remember Peter himself. You know, when Jesus said that he is now going to go to the cross and suffer and die and then on the third day be raised from the dead, you know, Peter responds by saying, no, Jesus, uh, that's not going to happen. And remember how Jesus responded in Matthew 16, 23? He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. So Satan can influence us even in this way. Uh, He can tempt us even to despair, to, to feel down, to think that living for God is burdensome and and just tempt us away from God with other things. Now just one thing to clarify. Satan and his demons, he can never make us sin. But he can tempt us to sin. And then we make the choice whether or not to go and follow that temptation that he's luring us uh, with. 
He will use whatever means to tempt us and to lead us astray from God. Now, I was reading a blog article last week, and one theologian stated this, uh, where he says, Satan is pleased to use pornography or systematic theology to rob God of worship. So it can be where on the one side just overt sin, on the other side some kind of religiosity or just some intellectual knowledge of perhaps God's word, but being satisfied in that just as a way of not causing you to grow closer to God. He can do many different things, even with good things, to lead us astray from God. Now you could say, now most of these strategies that we've looked at are strategies of the snake, of slandering and, and deceiving and lying and tempting to lure people away from God. But then as the great dragon, uh, Satan's strategy is more of assault and, and persecution and even murder. Remember in the story of Job, it's Satan who takes away Job's livestock, his riches, really. His servants, his family, they're all murdered. He kills them all. And then finally afflicts Job with painful boils and sores on his skin. Why? To somehow break that faith that Job had in God. He can cause people to suffer physically. You know, in Luke 13, 11, it talks about a woman who walked as a hunchback for many years because of an evil spirit. And remember in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, where Paul himself, you know, talks about this thorn in the flesh. Regardless of what that thorn was, you know, what Paul says is this, this is a messenger from Satan. It was something that Satan put there to hurt him. And even more than that, Satan can persecute God's people and even get them killed. You know, Jesus, uh, when he's speaking to the church in Smyrna, he said this in Revelation 2.10. This is what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So persecution that comes against churches, Christians getting tortured and killed, Satan is the mastermind behind that. In fact, Satan was the one who was behind the scenes, who instigated the people that ultimately led to the murder of Jesus. In Luke 22, we read of how Satan possessed, uh, possessed uh, Judas Iscariot as he carried out his plans to betray Jesus. Look at the words in Luke 22, 3 and 4. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, that is, betray Jesus to them. So Satan was even behind the scenes there and brought about the death of Jesus. Now, we can all be rest assured that you know, unlike Judas Iscariot, as a believer, we will never be possessed by Satan or any demon because the Holy Spirit indwells in us. But Satan as a snake, he can use deception and lies and temptation to lead you astray from God and harm you this way. And then as a dragon, he, even, he can even attack you through, through his servants, through the world system, as we try to follow Jesus faithfully, and in some cases, even, even, he can even get us killed. 
In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, speaking of the last days, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So Satan is a very powerful enemy. Somebody who opposes God and his plants and therefore God's people. And he can even do signs and wonders and even very miraculous things. And even though he's not as powerful as God and his future doom is sealed, we should not forget or even underestimate the power of Satan and his minions who are very much at play in this world and even in our lives. So what I would say is this. So even things like experiences and, and signs and wonders, we shouldn't be obsessing over these things. Oh, you know, things are just a little bit dry. I, I want more experience and I want to see some more signs or whatever. We, sh we shouldn't obsess ourselves with these things. Why? Because even Satan is capable of giving you experiences and wonders and all those kind of things and lead you astray from God. And so knowing this present enemy that is very much all around, along with his army, this should cause us to depend on God even more in prayer. It should cause us to be in God's word more so we know how to spot the lies and, and we can be more discerning than be carried away with his lies so that we won't be tempted or deceived. And really, as Ephesians 6 talks about, that we would put on that armor of God. There is a very real spiritual battle that is going on, even though we cannot see Satan and his demons. And we should not be ignorant about it, or else we will easily be swept away, swept away by Satan's lies. So that is the serpent that you find in Genesis 3. But secondly, we must also ask the question, if God created everything good in this world, that's what we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, then how did Satan, the serpent of old, become evil? And here we come to our second point. What we can say is this. At the end of day six, God looked at everything and said it was very good. Day seven, God rested. So sometime after day seven and Genesis 3-1, something has happened. Somehow in a short period of time, this serpent has become evil or Satan has become evil. And there's two passages in the Old Testament that give us some clue as to what happened and how Satan became this evil. Ezekiel 28 is one of the passages. Ezekiel 28, it's a passage that talks about where God really is declaring an indictment against the king of Tyre. This king of Tyre is a, is a powerful yet wicked king. And so God is declaring an indictment or a judgment against this king. And, and God calls out this king for his pride. Look at verse 9 of Ezekiel 28 where God says to this king, Will you still say, I am a god? In the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you. See, God says, even though you think you are God because you, you seem so powerful and you are killing so many people, you are still a man. You're not God. And so God here, really in verses 1 to 10, is addressing this king of Tyre of Ezekiel 28. 
But then when we move on to verses 11 to 19, God now addresses the power behind this wicked and powerful king. Look at, it, look at what it says, and it'll become very clear to you that this is not a description of this human king. In verse 12, God says, You were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You had the seal of perfection. That's what God is saying. Meaning you were perfect in every way. You had no flaws. You were full of wisdom. So whatever this power is behind the king of Tyre, God is saying you were somebody who was full of great knowledge and understanding. You weren't ignorant about things. You were full of wisdom. God even says that you were perfect in beauty. So whoever this being was behind this king of Tyre, it was an absolutely magnificent creature, full of splendor and, and majesty, probably even the most beautiful being that God had ever created. And then look at verse 13. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. That's definitely not the king of Tyre. So it's talking about the, the force that is behind the king of Tyre. And then it goes on to say, every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, and beryl, and onyx, and jasper, and sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day that you were created, they were prepared. So this description of being covered with every precious stone, you can imagine, it's again giving us this idea of grandeur and, and splendor and, and brilliance of this being that he would have really stood out from the, the rest of the created things. Verse 14 goes on to say, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of stones of fire you walked. So this, this being that is behind the king of Tyre, God says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Let me say, what's a cherub? A cherub is a, a type of angel. In fact, cherubs are the same beings, the same angels that God then stations to protect the Garden of Eden once Adam and Eve are expelled out of the garden. Then you find cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place where their wings cover over the Ark of the Covenant, which formed the mercy seat of God. Then in the visions of Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, cherubim are associated with the, the throne of God and this most holy place again. So really, these cherubim were special, very special angels who were tasked with the with most likely the worship of God and special service of God. And so this being is not just any cherub, it very specifically says an anointed cherub. So this is more likely referring to the fact that this was like the, the chief of all the cherubim. Given the highest rank in the worship of God and guarding the very throne room of God. That's what this cherub was. But you say, so, so what happened to this cherub? What happened to this being? If it was perfect and, and full of wisdom and beauty and, and splendor and was very specifically anointed by God himself, then what happened to it? Verse 15 says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. 
So just a couple of things here. This cherub or this angel didn't always exist. I mean, God makes it very clear from the day you were created. So he was created by God himself. In fact, the New Testament also confirms that all angelic beings are created by God. Colossians 1.16, where it says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That, that term there, that terminology, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, it includes rulers in the spiritual realm, talking about angels, really. So they were all created by God himself through Jesus Christ. Now, if you are thinking, okay, so the angels were then created by God, but when were the angels created? The Bible doesn't specifically say. We do know, though, Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God. He was the only being on day one. No other being there. And then we know, so what we can say is this. Sometime in creation week, God made the angels. But we're not specifically told which day he created the angels. Now, there are some texts or some theologians that say could have been day one, could have been day four. Uh, at best, it's conjecturing, looking at a certain verses, but the Bible does not explicitly say. Regardless, what we can say is this. This anointed cherub was also a creature that was created by God. And what verse 15 of Ezekiel 28 then says is that you were blameless in all your ways till unrighteousness was found, where? In you. See, the unrighteousness and sin didn't come out, didn't come from somewhere outside. There was nothing evil on the outside in what God had made. That somehow caused this cherub to be led astray. There was absolutely nothing unrighteous on the outside. No, the unrighteousness came from within himself, within the cherub himself. Now verse 16 and 17 of Ezekiel, 17, of Ezekiel 28 explains it a bit more. It says, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of stones of fire. And then verse 17 says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. See, this beautiful, powerful, wise, mighty cherub, the chief of all cherubim, became infatuated with himself. Why? Because of his beauty, because of his splendor, because of all his abilities, because of how exalted he was, that lofty position that was given to him. And so his heart became proud, and his wisdom then became corrupted, the word says. And it says there was violence. What violence? There was a rebellion then against God to try and take God's place. So what does God do? God cast him down from that elevated position in heaven and kicked him out of heaven. Now there's another parallel passage in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. And again, it gives us some more clue about how Satan became so evil. Now again, in Isaiah 14, God this time is indicting the king of Babylon. And just like in Ezekiel 28, where there, there was Satan behind the king of Tyre, here behind the 
king of Babylon, again, Satan, is mentioned in verses 12 through 14. Notice verse 12 of Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Here, Satan is called the the day star, the son of the dawn. See, again, these are very exalted terms. It literally means light bringer. Speaking of his brilliance and his, and his splendor and his majesty and his privileged position. But God says, you are cut to the ground. Why? Verse 13 and 14. I want you to look specifically as I read verse 13 and 14. The number of I wills in these two verses. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, in verse 13, when he says in his heart, I will ascend to the I will ascend above the stars of God. That is most likely talking about angels because frequently stars of God is a way of describing angels. So what he's really saying in verse 13 is this, that he wasn't just content to be the chief cherubim, the chief of the angels, but he wanted to establish his throne above all the other angels where he would then be worshipped and recognized as the supreme one. And then verse 14, where he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Really what he's talking about is not just the clouds that we see, but more likely talking about the glory clouds. Frequently the the clouds that are seen uh, in reference to the glory of God and around his throne. So what Satan is saying is this, that I want my glory to be higher than the glory of God. I will make myself like the most high. He's essentially saying, no, I don't want to serve under God. No, I want to be the sovereign one and I want to take the place of God. And just as he desired to exalt himself and and he became prideful this way, He was cast down from heaven. And you know what? Satan didn't just go alone. Remember, he's he's mighty. You know, God has given him great capacities. And what does he do? Look at Revelation 12, 3. Here, Satan is described again as that great dragon who, you know, metaphorically he says that this dragon with his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Meaning that when Satan fell, he deceived a third of the angelic beings and he convinced them to follow him so that a third of the angels also then left and went with him and they became his demons. You know, isn't it ironic? Satan was already given such a privileged position. You know, he was beautiful, full of wisdom, full of beauty, you know, the chief of all the cherubim and so on. And yet, he wasn't content. And to be great, he wanted to scale the highest heavens, uh, you know, go have glory that is higher than that of God, and even take the very place of God and be like God. That's how Satan thought he would be great. But I find it ironic because of this. Because Jesus, who is the greatest person in the world, did exactly the opposite. Remember Philippians 2, 5 to 8? Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, in, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a huge contrast. And yet, that's how Jesus was exalted. I would just say this. You know, every time we're prideful and seeking to elevate ourselves above others, whether it's through the use of our gifts or the positions that God has placed us in, positions of responsibility, or maybe just even in our relationships. If we seek to elevate ourselves to, and try to put others down, we are acting just like Satan instead of Jesus. Now coming back to Satan and, and his first sin, perhaps some of you might be thinking, But how could this happen? I mean, Satan was perfect and he was beautiful and full of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, he, he wasn't ignorant. He was full of understanding, supernatural knowledge. Then, then what happened? How did things go wrong? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say. And there's a, there's a mystery there. What the Bible does say, however, is this that within the heart of Satan, there emerged unrighteousness and pride. Nothing else on the outside caused it. It was something on the inside of Satan itself. But then you say, but how did that come about? How did whatever was inside, how did that come about? Well, the Bible doesn't say, and it's a mystery. And we shouldn't go beyond what the Bible says. And we have to trust that God has seen that we don't understand some of those things. And it might be for our own good. And, and just, by the way, as we're talking about the, the first sin or evil, we must understand this as well. See, evil is not a thing in itself. It's not something that is, you know, like how God created everything else. You know, did God create this? It's not a thing that is, it is not a thing by itself that can be created. It's not some force that kind of takes over a person. It is, as one of the old church fathers, Augustine, has said, it's a privation of good. It is the absence of good. In other words, evil is a negative, the absence of good. Think of it as light and darkness, right? We don't define darkness as an entity in itself. No, we define it as a negative. We say it's darkness is merely the absence of light. That's what darkness is. And so similarly, that's what evil is. It's not a thing in itself. It's merely the absence of moral perfection and good. When there's a lack of moral perfection, when there's a lack of righteousness and goodness, then there is evil and sin. So that's what happened to Satan. That there was unrighteousness and pride in his heart. And he sought to be like God and take the place of God. And he chose to then rebel against God. And you know what? From that very moment, he became utterly evil. So much so that the Bible calls him as the evil one. Utterly corrupt through and through. From that point on, there is not a single thing, a single desire, a single motive, a single action about Satan that is good or pure. It is utterly through and through evil. He is evil and everything that he does is utterly evil. Desiring to be like God, Satan because of his pride, and unrighteousness 
within himself actually became totally unlike God. The very opposite happened. Now here's just one another important thing to keep in mind as you're wrestling through this you know, beginning of sin and how it came about in Satan. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness, meaning he is fully pure. There's no sin in him at all. And then James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Which means, when you think of the first sin, I want you to get this. God is not the author of the first sin. He didn't somehow put an evil thought or desire in Satan. He didn't somehow tempt or trick Satan into sinning. God was not the author of sin. Satan's own sinful desires were. His own desires caused him to sin. So God cannot be blamed in any way for Satan's fall. Satan and subsequently his demons too are held fully responsible for their actions. But at the same time, while God is not held responsible for their sin, for causing sin, for causing that first sin, totally responsible is Satan and his demons. At the same time, Sin and evil are actually part of God's sovereign and wise plan, as mysterious as it may be. You say, what do you mean? I mean, think about where in Revelation 13, 8, it says the, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. What is that saying? That even before there was sin in the world, before anyone sinned, before any creature sinned, it was planned that the Lamb of God, that is Jesus Christ, would be slain. So, in other words, sin was always part of God's plan. Because that's the reason why God had decided that Jesus Christ would be slain, even before anything was created. That was always part of his plan. So sin was also part of his sovereign plan. But you say, why? I mean, why couldn't God just have have just his people for himself and not have sin and evil in this picture? Well, because God desired to display all of his attributes. You see, if there were no sinners, God wouldn't be able to display his grace. So when God saves sinners, his grace and his mercy and his compassion are on full display, which otherwise he would not be able to display, even though that is who he is. And again, if there were no sinners, how is God going to display his justice? So when people continue to reject Christ and reject God and live in their sin and rebel against God, God's justice and wrath against sin are put on full display against them. So even though God is not in any way evil and he does no evil thing, he does not tempt anyone with evil, Through the salvation and the damnation of sinners, God is able to fully display his glory. And you know, it's the same reason why God, who is not evil, still continues to allow evil to exist in this world till his appointed time. You say, what do you mean? Why? Because as Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things, and in that all things, it includes even evil. Where God causes even evil to ultimately be for his glory, but also uses evil for the good of his people. 
And I, I, I would even say this. Even as God allows sin to continue, and even sin to remain in us till we're glorified, till Christ returns, I mean, even we begin to appreciate more the grace of God, the mercy of God, the, the patience of God, the, the love of God that he continues to show to sinners like us who constantly fail him. We begin to appreciate it even more because we constantly, every day, fail before this amazing God. And so we begin to appreciate God even more for who he is. And he gets the glory for that. So this morning, we've looked at who the serpent in the garden is. It's Satan. And his sole aim is to oppose God and his ways. And therefore, for those of us who are believers, Satan strives to deceive and lie and tempt us. And because he's very smart and able and powerful, and because he's been around for so long, right from the beginning of creation, he's very skilled and experienced in what he does. So we should never underestimate Satan and his schemes against us. But at the same time, we shouldn't be so petrified or so fearful of Satan because we know he's a defeated foe. Instead of being petrified, as Paul says in Romans 8, 37 to 39, where he says, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And so therefore nothing, including Satan and his demons, cannot separate us from the love of God. That relationship is secure. And so what that means is because that relationship is secure, because of what Jesus has done, we should continue to resist Satan and his schemes. How? We looked at that as we pray and depend on God for strength and equip our minds and our hearts with the word of God. We also saw the fact that Satan is in fact an, an anointed cherub who because of his pride and sinful desire to become like God and take the place of God, morally fell, became evil, and became unlike God. And we saw that, that even just looking at that first sin, that we should always remember and seek to not lift ourselves above others. Because when we do that, we are reflecting Satan and not Jesus. And lastly, we saw that while God is not the author of evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil, evil was and is still part of God's wise and sovereign plan so that he can display his full glory. And while we may not fully understand how evil really works in this holy and righteous God in his, in his sovereign plan and how he continues to allow evil to work and hold those people responsible but yet use it for the good of his people, let us say this about ourselves along with Apostle Paul from 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the great God you are. We thank you for your word that explains to us so many things about this world, about the first sin that came about and how it came about and the nature of that sin and how Satan is and why he continues to be around and why he does what he does. Yet we thank you, Father, that you are above it all, that you continue to preserve us and yet the way you preserve us is even as we live faithfully uh, toward you by by feeding ourselves with the word of God, by depending on you in prayer and being in the fellowship of God's people. Father, we recognize that you are beyond comprehension. Even when we think about things like evil and your allowance of it and how you use those things and how you are not tainted by it in any way and you are not the cause of it and you will not cause anyone to evil and yet evil exists. And even though we do not understand these things, Father, help us not to, in a defiant way, question you, but help us to rest in your character in what you have revealed in who you are. And as we rest in your character and understand who you are, help us to be faithful to you even through the difficulties of this life, longing for that day when you will return and come and take us to be with you. In the meantime, Father, when Satan tempts us, help us to look back to the cross and see what he has done and help us to be faithful to you and give you all glory. We thank you, God, for who you are and we thank you for what you are doing in and through us so that you would get the glory. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.